I invite you to turn in the Word of God to 2 Timothy, to chapter 3. Tonight we come to the fourth and final sermon in a series looking at what are often called the perfections of Scripture. We've seen already the authority of Scripture and the necessity of Scripture, and then last week the clarity of Scripture. And then this week we come to the fourth and final attribute, the sufficiency of Scripture, and our primary ta- uh, passage is one that we actually touched on previously under authority, but we focused on the fact that all of Scripture is God-breathed. Now we're going to focus on the fact that it is sufficient. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, hear together with me the word of God. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Father, you say that your word is able to make us complete for every good work, and we ask this evening that you would use this word more and more to fit us for what you call us to. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to become complete in your time for the purpose that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The word that is going to be our primary focus this evening is sufficiency. What does it mean for something to be sufficient? And this is an incredibly important word. Some words you can substitute with a synonym and get by just fine. But then other words, it is very important you get it right. Sufficiency is one of them. For example, in the early 1900s, people were still trying to get to the South Pole. We maybe would have thought it was a lot earlier. No, they were still trying to get to the South Pole. Nobody had been there. And it wasn't just the cold that was an obstacle. It was the dietary restrictions of traveling at that time in history over a long distance. So they didn't have, they didn't first know exactly what the human body needed. And then two, they were very limited in what foods would keep over, say, three months, six months journey. And this was recorded, for instance, in a a book by a man named Cherry Apsley Gerard, who was one of the explorers. So there was a, a trip or an expedition group that went out from Scandinavia, and they were able to get to the pole and back in just three weeks because they incorporated a new idea, let's take dog sleds. The British, on the other hand, said, let's take snowmobiles. And this is the beginning of the 1900s, and it turned out they didn't work very well. They broke down, and what should have, they hoped, been about three or four weeks ended up taking six months round trip largely on foot in Antarctica. And they had brought as their primary sustenance, in addition to living off of penguins or whatever they found, 
they had brought what was called pemmican, which is kind of the ancestor of beef jerky. Protein, protein-rich diet, because we're going to be doing a lot of work. But many of the people on the journey died of scurvy. They didn't have enough vitamin C. And when you have scurvy, all kinds of horrendous things happen. I won't even tell you. It's horrific. And that's because protein is important and useful, but it is not sufficient. Sufficiency means that something in itself provides everything necessary. It doesn't mean that in no way can it be enlarged or expanded upon. It'd be nice after you've had your balanced breakfast if also you had a treat maybe. But everything is necessary in something that is sufficient and everything is present in it. Take, for example, maybe a a woman is led to a room that she's going to be staying in for a couple of weeks. And she looks around and she says, perfectly sufficient. She's not saying that it couldn't in any way be expanded upon, more furnished than it is. She's just saying she has everything she needs for that purpose, which is to stay in that room and be comfortable. And so the question is, are the scriptures sufficient for you? Or in what sense are they sufficient? Are they just part of balanced spirituality? Or are they the sum and substance of what you need to be saved and to be godly? And so these are the kinds of questions that we're going to look at. The Holy Spirit is calling you through the passage tonight and through the scriptures in general to lean into, to affirm and embrace that scripture is sufficient for your salvation and for what God regards as your godliness. Whatever others may say, the scripture is sufficient. And that then has implications for how you treat it, how you prioritize it in life. We'll come to some of those things. Now, there are going to be three major headings. I'll announce them each as we come to them. Two main ideas and then some reflections. But start with this. It's important to address possible pitfalls. As we look at any of these attributes, we want to be clear what we really mean by them. And sometimes it's good to start with what we don't mean. We saw last week... By clarity, we don't mean every part of the Bible is equally clear. Is it true that in some sense we can say that Scripture is insufficient? Yes. It is insufficient to do things that God did not design it to do. But sometimes people approach the Scripture and they expect it to do things that God has not designed Scripture to do. And I speak especially here to some of the younger members or maybe to some of the newer believers, but it's good for all of us to be reminded of this or to be prepared to guide others concerning this. When I say that scripture is insufficient, let me give you an example. It does not direct every particular of every decision that you will have to make. You will need sanctified sense that's based on scripture, but some of the particulars you are simply not going to find in the Bible. Let me give you an example. The scriptures themselves provide certain instructions about how we celebrate worship together on the Lord's Day. Hebrews chapter 10, we just saw this morning, says that we are ordinarily to gather on the Lord's Day. That's a principle. That's clear. But then it does not tell us what time of day, exactly what sort of building, what temperature should it be set at. Those are decisions that you have to make by employing all kinds of principles from throughout the word. Love your neighbor. Maybe that has a bearing on what the temperature should be. Uh, Maybe the fact that we need a certain amount of light 
in relation to reading and seeing the scripture. By the way, that was a distinctly Protestant innovation to fill the church with light and with particularly not colored light. That wasn't because simply Protestants don't like beauty. That was in part because post-printing press, there was the possibility of having the scriptures in the hands of the average person in the pew. And you need light to read by. And so we consult principles from scripture, but the scripture itself doesn't always tell us exactly what that looks like. Imagine that you visit a very beautiful park. It's one of those parks that's manicured and laid out. It's It's been carefully thought through. And there are all of these trails throughout the whole park. And when you first get there, you see a sign that says, please stay on the trails. You have freedom to roam within those boundaries. And even so, the Bible provides the proper biblical boundaries for the decisions that you make. You need to know the whole Bible. It's sufficient to give you those principles, but some of the details of your decisions are not going to be laid out. Younger people, you may be tempted at times to lean upon something like superstition or a kind of intuition that doesn't actually consult counsel or consult the biblical principles. So, for instance, maybe you want to know, what job am I going to do? And it's possible, too, to make an identity out of something that may prove to be just a portion of your life. I definitely at one point thought when I was 19 years old and starting to do photography that that might be my identity. I did it for 10 years. And if God grants me to live 80 years, who knows? Think how small a portion if I had made that my identity. Your identity is rooted in Christ. Your vocation serves useful purposes. But how do you decide such a thing? I'll tell you what you should not do. Imagine you open the Bible and you put your finger in and you alight upon the passage that speaks of Simon the Tanner. And now I'm called to be a leather worker. And that sounds absurd, but recognize people have done this. And you may wonder, am I allowed to use the Bible in this kind of, really, it's like a Ouija board-esque way. It's like the occult, where I'm not going to take the sense into account. I'm just going to hope that it leads me. It's sad to discover that even adults sometimes function this way. You may have heard of the famous Francis of Assisi, so-called Saint Francis of Assisi, although we are all saints if we are in Jesus Christ. But what seems to be reliable history, there are some things about his life that are almost certainly apocryphal, but that when he was about 20 years old, he was born into wealth, he was born into nobility, but he walked into a church service and he heard the minister reading the portion of scripture where it says, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor. And he immediately went out and sold everything. And what's apocryphal is that he even sold off his clothing and spent years just wandering around as a a denuded beggar. Now, the story and those details may not be true, but the sad reality is many multitudes of people through the Middle Ages believed that was true and thought that was a, a good model. He followed the Spirit because the voice of the Spirit is something other than what the meaning of the page is. So we can't twist the scripture. What it says here in our passage, uh, turn actually just a little bit back to chapter 2. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, in context, he's speaking to a pastor whose vocation is, is to explain the scriptures in a public setting to people. 
But that doesn't mean that you don't have your own responsibility to learn how to divide the truth, how to put into its proper categories. And that can be done. This is a reasonable expectation that if you had set a few hours of your life on a monthly basis, especially from a young age, aside to learn how to read the scripture, you will learn how to read the scripture well. Well. But that does mean it does not tell us everything we might want to know in terms of our decisions. Also, it doesn't provide all the data that is useful to life in many different areas. Scriptures norm our knowledge about the world, our interpretation of the knowledge that we have about the world. But that doesn't mean that there is not tremendous benefit outside of the scriptures. Our Belgic Confession describes creation as the first book that God has given to us. Christians, for that reason, should be on the avant-garde of actually knowing and interpreting revelation given by God in creation. Christians do true science. Much of what we take issue with in science is not the data, it's the interpretation of the data. We should have a yearning to cultivate in our families, a love to know how has God spoken in the world. What has he revealed about himself, about us? So, for instance, you can't go to the Bible, to get all of the information that would be beneficial to you about your health. Paul told Timothy in this epistle, take a little wine for your stomach issues. But that was not meant to exhaust all of the treatments available for those who have stomach issues. We have to go outside of the Bible to learn many of the things that would be beneficial to us. And that also means that we have to avoid a kind of, I I say the word in a particular sense, because piety is very good but a kind of pietistic, oh, I don't do medicine, I don't do health things, I just trust the Lord. You will trust yourself in all likelihood into an early grave, humanly speaking, if you decide to shun one of the ways that God has chosen to speak in the world. The scripture is sufficient for what it's intended to do, but not to tell you everything. Likewise, treating the old covenant as though that is a dietary manual. There are large segments of Christians today in this country who do that. You may not be aware of that. You may encounter such people, but who look to the old covenant and try to mine it to know, is this like a a health code to avoid diseases? And so we're not going to eat pork. Not because they say ritually we're allowed to, but we're not going to eat pork because the only reason, you know, God would not have forbidden that if it was actually good for us. Never mind the fact that Peter in a vision is told to eat of anything he wants. And does the Lord love his new covenant people any less than he did throughout all history when he doesn't continue to specify that we ought to do that? So we have to treat scripture carefully as we seek to learn what God desires. Scripture is insufficient to address all of those matters. What then do we mean when we say that it's sufficient? When we say scripture is sufficient, we mean that scripture contains everything necessary, all of the knowledge needed for salvation and the godliness God requires of you. Here's the way our Belgic Confession summarizes this. By the way, this is in our second heading here. The Belgic Confession, if you're not familiar with it, is just a summary of Christian doctrine. It's written in 1561 by a man, Guido de Bray. He was martyred for the Christian faith, and it was really the first Reformed Confession that gained widespread acceptance. Article 7, he says this, and this is in the context, think, 1561, of the Roman Catholic Church insisting exactly the opposite. He says, we believe that 
those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Everything unto salvation and the will of God as respects our godliness. Again, that doesn't mean that it's not beneficial to have other people help explain the scriptures to you, to help elaborate on some of these principles, but it's all in there. It's all in there in terms of what is necessary. We have to bear in mind that the way revelation was given to us progressed over time. How many peoples of God are there throughout history? One. Israel under the old covenant is not a different people. They are our people. We were grafted in. Romans chapter 11 tells us that we were grafted in as a wild olive branch into the household of faith. But now think about how the word was given to God's people and what implications that has for sufficiency, how you think about it. From approximately 1500 B.C. to 900 B.C., how many books did God's people have? Five. The first five books, the ones written by Moses. Was Scripture sufficient then? Yes, it was sufficient. Because when we talk about the doctrine of sufficiency, we're talking according to a period wherein God has given revelation. For the time when he gave them those books, it was sufficient for salvation and for the godliness to which he was calling them. Then, between 900 B.C. all the way until 40 A.D., what books do they have? They have the books of the, the latter prophets. They have all of Proverbs, Psalms, Micah, so forth. Those books were not added because the prior books were insufficient in their own time, but because of the changing circumstances of God's people, especially as they were about to be exiled, as they were facing exile, and then post-exilic life. The Lord saw fit to give them additional revelation. None of that changed the doctrine of salvation, but it did clarify the expectation for godliness in the time that they were going to live in. Then you come to the time from 40 A.D. until 90 A.D. This is the time of Jesus and the apostles. And then we get a whole plethora of books that we call the New Testament, the canon of the New Testament. They were not given because the doctrine of salvation was insufficient in the Old Testament. There are not two different doctrines of salvation. But it was given in order that in our circumstances, under the New Covenant, where Gentiles are included, so on and so forth, so that we would know in our context how God expects us to live. So the scriptures are sufficient for salvation, for godliness. They do grow over time, but the word of God at every time is sufficient for what he has desired from his people. That is the basic doctrine of sufficiency. Now, where would we see this? One passage is ours tonight. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3.15, and you'll see this. First, addressing salvation. And here in the context, he, Paul is talking about the Old Testament. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's because the people of God under the Old Covenant were trusting in Christ Jesus, though they did not yet know exactly what his ministry would look like. They knew they were waiting for the anointed one. That's what Christ means. They knew they were waiting for the Savior. That's what Jesus means, the one who saves. They were believing upon him. 
And the scriptures are able to make you wise for that. Paul gives no indication that he thinks that it's scripture plus the oral traditions that were passed along by the Jews. And Jesus takes umbrage several times in the Gospels where he says, you teach as the word of God that which is really just the commandments of men. You put it on the same plane as if it's necessary. And if you don't do these rituals, you're out. Similarly, verse 16, look with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, Paul could have broken here and said that the man of God may be partially equipped for his total responsibility in combination with X, Y, and Z. He doesn't say anything like that. He says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And even the word work here, I want to be clear, the word work, ergon in Greek, it just, it's a broad word that just means an action that emanates from your decision, your will. Every good decision. Now, he's not saying that there's no benefit in counsel. But the core, what is actually drawn upon for that counsel, if that counsel is value at all, it's because it's taking and applying what is in the word. And so there's not some other thing that you need. This is why the best books related to the Bible, the best Christian books, are the ones that are putting you into the scriptures where they're constantly teaching how to use the scriptures rightly, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How do you live out of this? There's a lot that could be said, but I want to draw your attention to just a few things, a few implications and applications of this doctrine of sufficiency. The first, I speak to all of you, I exhort all of you, but I especially want to appeal to some of the younger people here. Resist all claims that the Bible is insufficient. You will encounter them if you have not already encountered them. It sometimes comes from people who tip the hat to the Bible, and maybe they don't even realize that they're undermining the Bible. But sometimes it comes from people who completely disregard the Scriptures. They say, well, they don't have what you need for life. That's out in the world. Resist all attempts to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. What can that look like? Sometimes it looks like an appeal to tradition. That without certain traditions, you cannot possibly know. Probably you as well. I've certainly had friends who were drawn by the allure either of, say, Roman Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy. Because of the incredible historical burden of how can we possibly know exactly what God wants of us, certainly he would vest that into the traditions. That argument may appeal to you and to other people it doesn't appeal at all. But the appeal to tradition can be powerful. One example of this is the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance. Penance is different than repentance. Repentance, what is it? If somebody asks you, what is repentance? Can you give an answer? The Bible definitely calls us to repent and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Repentance is an inward turning of the heart that results in an outward turning of the life. It's an inward turning of the mind and of the soul. It's a taking sides with God against all that is opposed to him. But penance 
are certain duties that you might perform to express your sorrow or to try to make amends over something. We talk about a penitentiary as a place where you're paying off your debt to society. Around the 8th century, around the 8th century, which is a long time after the apostles, bishops began to form rubrics, basically think a spreadsheet, a rubric of the amount of penance that a person ought to do for particular sins in order to be allowed back into the life of the church. How do we know if the person's really repented? Well, we can't just take their word for it because we don't want to put them in a position of being insincere. So let's have them do different things. And the, the rubric would have, you know, the sin committed and then a number of factors that might aggravate it. How informed were they? How old were they? How wealthy were they? And then you figure out, okay, that's the penalty. And so, for instance, a penance for a less, a less serious, and not, say, murder, but maybe battery, would be assigned a penance of the sort of, say, uh, one that I read, would be a penance that you must fast where you only eat bread and water on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for seven years. If you break, the, if you cheat at all, it gets extended. But nobody knew that you broke it unless you confess it, so what's going to happen? And that rolls into the idea of, well, we, there must be some place where God makes you finish what you owe, purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory did not fall out of the sky It's a rational inference to an irrational interpretation of Scripture. Tradition can be incredibly powerful, though, especially if you're born and raised with them. We have to bring everything back to Scripture. Or it may be an appeal to private revelation. Somebody claims they had a dream, and now you're supposed to marry them. How many people? It sounds, it would be hilarious if it were not the sad reality. Sometimes people who are delusional prey upon others and tell them, this is what I saw and you have to do it too, whether it's about marriage or some other thing. It has to be normed by scripture. But didn't God work with dreams in former times? In former times, they did not have all of the revelation we do now have. Beware. Beware, because everything you need for your decisions is contained in scripture. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, We also have the word of the prophets as confirmed beyond doubt, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. And so everything has to be normed by Scripture, but then Scripture is read together with others, not just one person's peculiar take on it. It may be an appeal to personal experience or intuition. Of the things I've described here, tradition, private revelation, and then this intuition, overwhelmingly, I believe in our time, most of us will face this one. Overwhelmingly, people appeal to say, the Bible is not enough to address the society and the times we live in. How do you know? I just know it. This is my experience what they're actually experiencing is that they have been conformed to the world and now they feel out of sorts when held up to the scripture. As the scripture says, like God be true and all men liars. We've already touched on authority previously. But I read an article about this recently. 
about a former, well, he is technically an ordained minister, depending on which ordination you recognize. But a minister who moved to New York specifically with the hope of ministering to a subsection in society known for particular sins. And he wrote after the fact that the whole time he was also struggling with some of those same things regarded as sin in the Bible. And then he began to explore on the side other faiths. And this is what he said. The beauty of it was that I began to explore other religions. And as I lived in New York City, where there are all kinds of types of worship, then I discovered an interfaith seminary and was later ordained as an interfaith minister. To him, there was an incredibly freeing as he had looked around and he saw... A moment? As he looked around and he saw a society in New York that he did not fit in with, he found, well, you know what? When I expand to look at all the religions of the world, then I find maybe the core is just love. Compare that with 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Turn over and look at chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. That is, it doesn't get weightier than that. He's saying as if, not as if, as a fact, you are in the presence of the omnipresent God. And I charge you in that understanding, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I do believe that is exactly what happened with that man, where he came to say, well, the Bible is not totally sufficient. It's one myth among many myths that all contribute to human flourishing as we learn how to be nice people. Niceness is not the standard of salvation. And the standard of niceness has to be ruled by the standard of love. The standard of love is that which glorifies God and genuinely does good for others. The scriptures are sufficient to reveal to you all that God wants you to know, even in this age that we live in. God who dwells outside of time knows how to speak into time sufficiently. I encourage you to do two things then finally. One, deeply value the scriptures. To whatever extent you lack that, pray that God would make them the bread and the butter of your life. Every day is a day to be in the word. You may not have much time, but then again, you have to assess your own use of time. I say that as somebody who constantly has to come back to this. And I tremble at times to think, how much would I be in the word if I didn't do this vocationally? But then I remember I, I wasn't vocationally a pastor all of my life. And always the healthiest that I have felt and always the healthiest spiritually that you'll feel is when you make a regular habit of turning to the word, not just for truths that you can use for others, but believing here is my sufficiency. If God calls me to travel to the bottom of the world through ice and blizzards to accomplish some purpose for his kingdom and all I have are the scriptures for my soul, you're not going to die of spiritual scurvy. You'll have everything that you need. The scriptures are sufficient. 
Seek it. Seek it and discover. Taste and see that the Lord is good. May he help us with that. Let's pray even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the divine word. We thank you for having preserved it. For having shown us mercy in speaking to us. We thank you and we praise you that you have not left us in the dark. We thank you for these perfections of the scriptures. That you've spoken with authority and clarity. We thank you that you have given us a sufficient word. Help us to acknowledge that it is necessary as well. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us in our study, that we would not be led away into foolish errors or myths, that you would help us likewise to teach others, to order our priorities aright. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not only nourishing us spiritually, but this evening that we get to share a meal together. We ask that you would please bless the food to our bodies and bring us home safe. Guide us in the coming week. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.